The guys from Spun, the Supernatural Paranormal Unexplained Network, are doing a paranormal investigation at the Clock Tower in Warmley, Bristol, on the bank holiday Sunday of the 5th of May. Tickets are just £20 per person, and I will be there too. Depend on her shifts, so may Bella. So if you want to join us, contact the guys at Spun via their website, www.spun.org.uk. There's only a few places left, so be quick. Do it today. We look forward to meeting you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast with your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 45 of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast. Hello. And today we got a really, really, really special guest for you. But before we go into who our guest is, although if you've looked at the title of this you have already know. Very funny. <laughs> we want to first of all say thank you to Bill Blair. He is the chap that has produced this new intro music that you've heard today for the first time. Yeah, thanks Bill. Yeah, and he's done it specially for us. So if you guys are interested in getting something for yourself, if you're interested in getting some music for maybe a podcast or a radio show or something else that you're doing, then pop along to his YouTube channel, the information for which is in our show notes. Now on to today's show. We have for you, as I said earlier, a special guest. This is somebody who we've actually mentioned in a previous podcast before that we've done on near-death experiences. Actually, we've mentioned her in a couple of our podcasts. That's true. We have Mm. actually, yeah. Yep. She is a doctor. She did her PhD actually in the study of near-death experiences. She is probably the foremost authority on it. She's author of the book, The Transformative Power of Near-Death Experiences, and she co-wrote that with Kelly Walsh. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Penny Sartori. Hi, Penny. It's really great to have you on the show. Hello, Shelley. Hi, Bella. How are you doing? You all right? Very good, thank you. So can you, before we get started, can you let our listeners know who may not be familiar with your work a little bit about yourself? I used to work as a nurse and I worked as a nurse in intensive care for 17 years and due to my the nature of my work, you know, you see death quite a lot in the intensive care unit and it was a connection I made with one patient who was clearly dying that changed everything for me and um, it made me question what happens when we die. What is death all about? And as a result of that, I thought I started reading about death. And I realised that, you know, working in intensive care, I was in the ideal place to do some research of my own. And so that's what I did. I, um, I did some research. And for five years, I interviewed patients who were in intensive care. And I was interested specifically in near-death experiences. And then at the end of the five years, it took me another three years then to analyse the data and to write it up. And that's when I was awarded a PhD for my research then into near-death experiences. Can you talk to us about maybe the process that you went through in terms of the sort of scientific analysis of the NDEs? Yes. Now, a lot of them... Before embarking on the research, I wanted to see, you know, is there any possible way that I could explain these near-death experiences? So was it something like the brain shutting down, you know, as we as we approach death, is the brain just kind of shutting down and becoming dysfunctional? I thought, well, we give the patients a lot of potent drugs in the intensive care unit, and I thought, is it because of the drugs that we give into the patient? I looked at then the theory that lack of oxygen could cause these experiences. And then I also wanted to know, were they simply hallucinations as well? Because in intensive care, you do see a lot of patients who are clearly hallucinating. So I was just wondering, were near-death experiences some sort of hallucination? So what I did is I I went through all of the records of the patients and checked which drugs that they were on, if they had, what their blood levels were like, and if they'd been hallucinating. And what I found in the analysis was that it wasn't due to the drugs. If anything, 
the drugs that we give patients are more likely to create a confusional experience, turn it into something very confusional. And um, I realised that the, the patients who had been given large amounts of drugs were less likely to have one of these experiences. So that was an interesting finding that I wasn't really expecting. And also when I analysed the data, I, some of the patients were ventilated at the time of these experiences and their oxygen levels were normal. So it didn't seem to be related only to oxygen and abnormal blood results. With regards to the hallucinations, I also documented patients who were clearly hallucinating as well. And I followed them up as part of the research and I questioned them. And I noticed there was a difference between the group of people who'd had a near-death experience and the group of patients who had had hallucinations. Now, with the near-death experience, the patients were adamant that this was a real experience. And unless you'd had the experience for yourself, there was no way that you could understand it. They were also able to recount it. Yes. What they re reported were things that were actually happening at the time that they were deeply unconscious and things that go going on around them. So, you know, if they, they were so deeply unconscious, they should not really have had any awareness of that. But clearly they did. They were reporting things that were going on during that time when they were deeply unconscious. Now, with the patients who were hallucinating, those patients up, they could rationalise that they had been hallucinating. You know, they both, they all said, oh, my goodness, I'm really embarrassed by my behaviour. I was hallucinating now. I can see that I was hallucinating really badly. And when I, when I did investigate those hallucinations as well, what I found was that they were hearing things in the background. So it was things like staff conversation, the noise in the intensive care unit of all the machines in the background, the alarms on the monitors, for example. So they were hearing all of these as they were coming around from and waking up from sedation. And then that was contributing to hallucinations, a build-up really of all of the drugs that they had in their system. So the, the two experiences were clearly very different, you know. I know that you were present for one account of the NDE that you speak about, and I believe you refer to this patient as patient 10? That's right, yes. Now, patient 10 is the strongest case in the study, and I happened to be looking after him on this morning, and he'd been in intensive care for quite a few weeks, and he was still ventilated, but he was making a good recovery. So we decided to sit him in the chair because it's very good for the patient's posture and it's good for their muscle tone. And we sat him in the chair and as soon as we'd sat him in the chair, he looked uncomfortable. And then the alarm started alarming to say his oxygen levels were dropping a little bit. So I gave him some extra oxygen, which sorted out that problem. And then his blood pressure dropped as well very low and his heart rate went into a very brief fast rhythm. So my colleagues called the doctors and he started then to get very clammy and he looked grey and all of these are signs that there's a potential cardiac arrest that could happen. So we literally got this man back into bed in a matter of seconds and by this time he was deeply unconscious. So the doctor came and examined him and gave him some fluid for his blood pressure which resolved that problem and the doctor had to go away to another emergency. Now, after a few minutes more, the blood pressure started to drop again. So I went off to find another doctor and the consultant happened to be walking into the unit that day for the first time. And again, he examined the patient. He shone a pupil torch in his eyes to check that his pupils were reacting. And we gave him some more fluid and then his condition started to stabilise. So the consultant went to his office. And after about half an hour, he started to uh, flicker his eyelids and he was moving his arms and his legs a little bit. And these are signs that he was regaining neurological function. So it was about four hours later and this man regained full consciousness as the ward round happened to be going to his bedside. And he was trying to communicate something to them. He was very excited about something, spelled out. I died and I watched it all from above. Mm. And so the doctor actually took this quite seriously and he actually documented it in the patient's notes to say wow. that he had um, regained consciousness and reported a near-death experience. Is that common, sorry, for a doctor to report that in the notes? Is that something that's generally done? Or Well, I think 
until that point, um, I'd never seen it recorded in a patient's notes. So it was a good thing, really, because I think, you know, the, the doctors were aware of my research and recognised this as a valid phenomenon. Mm. And as a result, then they actually documented that as well. And when I went and, and interviewed this patient then in depth, he described everything that had happened. And what he described happening was what happened when he was deeply unconscious. So he wasn't at that point with, uh, responding to deep, painful stimuli. He wasn't responding to anything at all. And what he reported was very accurate. First of all, he reported which doctor had examined him, although he hadn't seen that doctor that day prior to losing consciousness. He described what the doctor did with shining the pupil torch in his eyes. He described the physiotherapist looking very nervous and poking her head around the curtains, and that is correct. And when that was happening, he was deeply unconscious. And he also re uh, reported me cleaning his mouth with a pink sponge and um, suction catheter as well. And so everything that he reported was accurate. And I know because I was actually there at the time. Further to that as well, not only did he have the out-of-body experience, he also described going upwards into like a pink room. And in that pink room was his dead father his dead mother-in-law, who he'd never met, recognised from photographs, and also there was a man standing between them, and he said, I'm not sure who this man was. He might have been Jesus, but it's not what I expected Jesus to look like because his hair was long and scruffy and needed to be combed. He said he was really happy where he was. You know, any the pain that he'd been in previously just disappeared, and he said it was the most loving feeling he'd had and it was just a lovely place and he wanted to stay there. But his father was calling him, but the Jesus figure said, no, it's not your time, you have to go back. And he said as soon as he said those words, everything kind of faded and he, it was as if he pulled backwards into his body. And as soon as he entered into his body, he was in immediate pain. And he said that the pain was so bad, he said he wished that he was, was dead because but he said it was a lovely experience and in fact he kept coming back to the intensive care unit to try and tell other patients not to be afraid of dying you know and another interesting aspect of this case as well is that this man has cerebral palsy and he was 60 years of age at the time of this experience and his right hand has always been in a permanently contracted position now, after the experience, when I was doing an in-depth interview, he misinterpreted one of my questions. And he said, oh, yeah, look at this. I can open out my hand. And he just opened out his hand fully. And I didn't realize how significant that was at that point. It was only when I went back and discussed this with the doctors and the physiotherapists. And they said that physiologically that could not have been possible because the tendons in his right hand would be in a permanently contracted position. Uh, and in order to open out his hand fully, he would have to have some surgery to release the tendons. So I checked in his medical notes to see if he's had any hand physiotherapy or something like that, but he hadn't. And so that is something that we can't explain. But that is fascinating to me because, you know, think about how many other people are out there have got similar ailments. And if we understood how that happened, yeah. you know, we could help millions of other people without having that surgical intervention. So, and it would save the NHS millions of pounds as well in the long run, you know. To purposely induce it so that it could happen, yeah. If, if there's some way that we could understand how that has happened, you know, we could, how many other millions of people we could help as well, you know. You said that when you initially went onto that ward, you were almost given a heads up, if you like, by the other members of your team that this was going to happen this morning. And sure enough, you got onto the ward and a couple of hours later, the person that they'd spoken about then passed to a layman like myself. It begs the question that if this is known really within the medical profession, how come it's not more widely known amongst everyone else? And I guess the second part to that question is, is that if it is so well known within the medical profession. Is there any sort of training or is there anything in the handbook <laughs> that says, you know, this is the kind of thing to expect? And, you know, if you see patients exhibiting certain actions or reactions to things, that this is what's on the horizon? Well, that's the thing, you see, because it was never in my nurse training. 
things like that. It was those are things that I picked up when I was on the ward. So the nurse training itself never covered things like that. But clearly, yes, nurses are very much aware of this. But you know, some people are interested in it, some people aren't, and think certain people will pay attention to it, but others just kind of like carry on as if it's you know one of those things. But I think it's something that we we need to include into the, the training of nurses, absolutely do. Just because we can't explain it doesn't mean it doesn't happen. And I think these experiences, the end of life experiences, which, you know, it's very common to see patients as they're dying or a few days before they die, they start to communicate with dead relatives or friends. And, you know, sometimes it's relatives and friends that they didn't know were dead at the time as they were dying as well. And so I think there's a lot, it, it is very com- widely known, but no one has really t- done much research into it. So I think, first of all, we need more research into it. But I think because it's beyond the current scientific materialistic paradigm, I think we need to expand our science as well. And I think these kind of experiences need to be included because they're very, very important at the end of life. A lot of people might think these patients are just hallucinating, but it's far more than a hallucination. And when they have these experiences, it often results in that very peaceful and calm death as well. I remember years ago chatting to um, a consultant who worked in the hospice, and she said, you know, patients who had previously had a near-death experience were more likely to have that really pleasant and gentle, easeful death. You know, they so, know what um, it's like. Yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. I work in a care home and I've seen that where you could have somebody who really is on high doses of pain medication and they just come out with some really strange things and you know, well, that doesn't make sense. And then near the end, they will suddenly start to talk clearly and they'll start to make sense and they're obviously talking to someone which I found yeah. really interesting. Yeah. And then they do go much more peacefully. Almost like they're being guided. Mm. Yep. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. That really does. It, that's very common and it, it's very widely kind of talked about amongst nurses, but no one really then does much with it, you know. It's interesting and I think we are seeing changes because we've got more and more people doing other kinds of work now. There's a lady called Felicity Warner who is doing soul midwifery and she trains people to be end-of-life companions to people. And I think, you know, these are such needed roles and it's understanding that dying process because we don't talk about death and dying as a society. It's something that we always brush under the carpet or, you know, we, we just... It's one of those taboo subjects. But I think, you know, when you start to think about death and learn about death, that's really when I started to learn about life. And it's really enhanced my life if you and the way I live my life, you know. And when I started my research, a lot of my friends and family just thought I was really morbid. But it's really empowered me as well, you know. It's just given me that different attitude towards life. And I think dying people have such a lot to teach us all and I think you know it's important to take notice of them as well yeah something we're all going to face one day isn't it it is yeah that's right we're going to be looking at some of the instances that you talk about in your book the transforming power of near-death experiences and it was written by yourself and Kelly Walsh that's right. And I know that Kelly had her own experience. I know that in chapter one of the book, actually, Kelly described her own NDE experience, and she believed that she was healed in, in some degree by gods and angels. Do you want to speak a little bit about Kelly's situation, about her experiences? Yeah, now Kelly's interest are uh, very, very interesting. It was really quite synchronistic how we actually connected anyway. Emailed me in May 2014 and my book, The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences, had been serialised in a national newspaper earlier on that year um, in February, or the end of January. And I'd received thousands of emails and I'd been replying to them but it was a full-time job to respond to them and I was heavily pregnant when uh, Kelly had contacted me and I'd made the conscious decision to not do my emails but just to focus on my birth 
And when Kelly contacted me, it was just a very brief email. I felt intuitively that I needed to connect to her. So I did. I responded. And we had a Skype chat. And I was really fascinated by what she'd said about her near-death experience. It had happened during a time when she was unconscious because she had taken an overdose and she tried to commit suicide. Uh, Her life had got that bad that she felt she had no other option. And she took this overdose and she ended up on a psychiatric ward. And it was while she was on the psychiatric ward that she had this experience where she felt that she had kind of, as she closed her eyes, she felt that she was traveling very, very fast. And it's almost like part of her life was downloaded as well. And she traveled through what she described as seven bumps of the universe. And when she got beyond the seventh bump, it was a a real struggle to get past these bumps. But when she did get beyond the seventh bump, she felt that she was just enveloped in this deep, deep, unconditional love that she'd never felt before in her life. And it's really difficult for her to put it into words and and it's in more, she describes it in more detail in the book. But as a result of that experience, when she woke up the following morning on the ward, she felt fine. She felt that she'd been healed and that depression that had contributed to her, her overdose had completely lifted and she felt totally transformed. Over the months, as a result of her experience, she then made big progress and she decided then that she was going to set up a charity. She created a cartoon figure called Positivity Princess and she has created like a little cartoon of Positivity Princess. She created merchandise and the intent behind everything that she's created is she's put it all into the Love Care Share Foundation, which is a big charity she set up, and she wants to put all the proceeds to go to children around the world. And in fact, all the proceeds from that book are going to that charity to fulfil Kelly's mission of what she feels that she's on a mission to create this charity and go and help children around the world. And you know, Kelly's got such a business mind that she could have made millions and millions of pounds for herself but she doesn't want it for herself it's all for this charity and you know she's not the only one because so many people are transformed by these experiences and it's not kind of just so much the experience it's what they go on and do afterwards as well that's what interests me I want to know why how are these experiences so powerful and so motivating that it changes people's lives in such a way that the whole of their life is, has changed and it's not about them anymore. It's about doing good in the world. So, you know, I think there's a lot that these people can, can teach us as well, you know. Do the experiences that you've researched tend to cross religious and cultural boundaries? They do, yes. So oh, they're, they're experienced in all kind of um, cultures and religions, but they're experienced like, slightly differently according to the culture. So, for example, people in India, instead of having a life review, they tend to meet a man with a book of deeds, often called Chitragupta. And this man has this book of deeds, which has got everything that they've done in their life. And depending on what is in that book determines the next stage of their experience. So that is very similar to the life review that people have over in the West. Also as well, people in India are more likely to see Yama, the god of the dead, whereas in the West, they're more likely to see images of Jesus or Mary or things like that. I wonder, does whatever this higher power, does that higher power sort of make itself look in such a way that, you know, whoever they're visiting would understand and relate to? Yes, I think. Yeah, you're right. I think it does because we're all brought up in with, with different images and things like that. And it's how they recognize them, really. They recognize them in this way. So it could be the same underlying kind of experience, but it's interpreted according to the culture. So like Carl Jung's theory of archetypes and the collective unconscious, mm-hmm. it's as if people are tuning in to this collective unconscious and then those images become meaningful 
according to their cultural filter then. One of the major problems in this world are the differences between religion and, and how people cope and don't really accept people of other religions. And it's been the cause of most of the major wars in the world. And it would be interesting to think that should this ever be proved to the degree that we can say without a doubt that there is only one higher power, if you like, but that higher power takes on different roles, if you like, or or different personas to appeal to different people. If we were able to one day definitively say, yes, there's only one higher power and it's been proved, whether that would actually help mankind in, in such a way that it would stop some of these religions. But I guess I'm answering my own question now because, mm-hmm. you know, we're all people and yet there's still people that segregate each other based on colour and, and everything else. So I guess that if even if we proved that it was one entity, I'm sure people would still find something else to have a problem with. There will be always people who will say, oh, I don't believe it, no matter what. Uh-huh. Yeah, yes, that's right, exactly, there will be. But the interesting thing as well is that... Um, the similarities in these experiences when they kind of take back the kind of individual kind of experience. If you look at what they all say is that we're we're all interconnected. Mm. They realise that we're all part of one great whole. And that's something that can unite the world, you know. And the underlying message of the near-death experience is one of peace. And it's basically the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would wish have um, to have done to yourself yeah. and you know that's at the heart of all of the wisdom traditions of the religions so there is that unifying aspect as well so maybe if everyone had more of a an understanding and knowledge of near-death experiences that in itself could help to unite Yeah, definitely. I was reading your book and it was interesting that there are people who have a near-death experience and sense demonic sort of entities or forces and these people often reform after this experience. Do you have an example of someone or an incident that you can talk about where that happened? Yeah, there, there's, these experiences are quite uh, are much more difficult to research because there's almost some stigma involved with them, you know, because first of all, people are hesitant to report them because they think, well, I didn't have a pleasant experience. Well, there must be something wrong with me. Am I a bad person because I have this frightening experience? And then some people are just too terrified to think about their experience. And even just recalling it can really have that big impact on them. And it can really um, send them back into some form of trauma as well. It's almost like they get some uh, post-traumatic stress as a result of the experience. So um, one of the examples I can think of is one of the patients in my study. She'd had a cardiac arrest. And when she lost consciousness, she found herself on a lake. And she could see a lady in a rowing boat and she had a straw hat on her head and she didn't recognize. But she knew that she had to keep away from her. Then she said all of a sudden there were these colors and they were spinning. It's almost like a Catherine wheel firework. And it was spinning very violently. And she said, and then I could feel the heat. And she said, and then I could see the flames of hell. And as soon as she started to recall that part of the experience, she became very tearful and she became really distressed and she, she started crying. She said, I can't, I can't think of this. And she became so distressed that I had to terminate the interview. And mm. when I went back to see her about two days later, she said, oh, please, I can't talk about this anymore. Um, and so that was one lady I came across in my research. And I, I just feel that it's so important that we understand these so that we can support these patients as well psychologically because they are traumatized by the experience. Also as well, I remember when I was a student nurse, we had a patient who was dying and every time we went past their bed, she would try and call us and try and pull us in, into bed with her and she was terrified and she was saying, please don't let me die, don't let me die. I've died before and it was horrible. Oh, now, geez. Yeah, we we didn't understand this. And it was only when I was talking, the staff nurse actually was talking with the family and she said, you know, we can't understand with your mum because she is 
you know, frightened. Can you think of anything? Because she told us she'd died before. And they said, yes, she did have a cardiac arrest five years ago. Now, I'm thinking now, with hindsight, this lady probably had one of these distressing near-death experiences, which left her terrified at the end of her life. And she had quite a, an unpleasant death because we had to sedate her for her own safety because uh-huh. she kept trying to climb out of bed, you know. And uh, I just feel it's, it's vital that we provide patients with this psychological support to help them understand their experience and for it to be less impacting on them, really. And I know that you refer to the fact that this doesn't always just happen to what we would perceive as bad people. No, that's right. Now, there's, whereas a lot of people, um, the, the research that's been done has kind of looked into things. Is it just bad people or things like that? But it's, it's not. It can happen to anyone. And another thing that's been kind of looked into as well is perhaps it's people who are used to being in control because it's almost like it's a failure to relinquish the ego. Because when they start to relax into the experience, rather than resist it, that's when it it can turn into a pleasant experience. So it could be our ego, that we're holding on to our ego, and then when we relax it, it it can turn into a pleasant experience. That's me buggered then, because I'm a bit of a control freak. (laughs) (laughs) Remember to relax. I will, I will. I'll take that on board. Um, (laughs) You say about, obviously the fact that maybe there should be some support for people who've been through an experience like this. Are there any sort of places that you can go to find that support? Well, there are now. When I started doing my research, there was very little support. And there's quite a lot in America because it's the International Association of Near-Death Studies. And they have lots of groups all over America in the various different states. There was one in the 1980s in the UK, and that was run by Dr. Peter Fennick and David Lorimer. That didn't go on for for many years. So one of the ladies in the book, actually, um, Gigi Strayler, she contacted me a while ago, and she was looking for support because she'd had this experience and she was trying to understand it. We were in contact for a number of years before she actually finally disclosed everything that happened to her. And she was trying desperately to understand her experience. So she went through years of a lot of therapy. As a result, then, she, when she came through the other side and had this deeper understanding, she has now set up NDE UK, and that is a support group as well. So it's based in London. It's still in its early phases at the moment, but her vision is to have, again, lots of different support groups all over the UK and then have like annual conferences so people who are still trying to understand their experience can go along and meet up with people who understand them because they've gone through that experience as well. And that's the difference, isn't it? Because as much as you can have an open mind and as much as you can want to support someone unless you've actually had an experience you just don't know what it's like yes that's it that's right exactly so you know it's great what Gigi is doing because it's then building that strength and there's also Ray as well is another guy involved and he again is doing great work as well so you know it's it's really really important that we have these networks really Because for years and years and years, these experiences have just been dismissed, you know, and so many people, it it takes a lot of courage to share their experience. And so many people have actually built up that courage and gone to speak about it. And they've been laughed at and their experience has been totally dismissed. And that in itself has resulted in them not going any further and not telling anyone else about it, you know. And they hold it within. And for years and years they can hold that within. But they have this yearning of understanding what it was that happened to them. Does hypnosis play a part in either allowing people to recount their experiences in more detail or to maybe soothe their concerns afterwards? No, it can do, but that's an interesting question because I remember when I first started on my research, I read a paper which warned of having hypnosis as well because if you go back to the time of your experience, there were some cases where patients had actually gone back and developed the symptoms that they were going through at the time. So it's very important that, you know, this is done 
with reputable hypnotists who's got lots of experience because you don't want to go back and, and do something like a cardiac arrest as well, you know. Mm. So, But I do know of patients who have gone back and had hypnosis and as a result, they've recalled an experience that they'd never consciously recalled at the time it happened. In fact, Ainsley, who is in the book, The Transformative Power of Near-Death Experiences, he had hypnosis and it took him back to the time when he had an accident and he was a teenager. And instead of it being blank, which he recalled, under hypnosis, he recalled a full near-death experience. So things made sense to him in his life as a result of having that hypnosis then. So he had that recall of the near-death experience that he'd not consciously had. And that, to me, is very interesting as well, because when you look at the research studies, there's between 11 and 20% of patients who survive cardiac arrest recall a near-death experience. So then what what about the other, you know, 80-odd percent of patients who don't report the near-death experience? Is it because they just don't have that conscious recall of it? And it would be interesting if we could, you know, regress or do hypnosis on all patients who recover from a cardiac arrest to see if they are able to recover memories of an experience as well, you know? So it would be similar to a dream, for instance, and I have trouble sometimes remembering my dreams. Other times I can remember them, you know, without a problem. So I've started actually recording myself at night, and other than finding out the fact that I snore horribly... <laughs> I found that I'm hearing things that maybe I'm saying in my sleep that is then helping me recall a dream that I had. So could it be a similar sort of process whereby it's that, as you said, the power of recall that is maybe affected and not the fact that the person didn't have a near-death experience? Yeah, that's right, exactly. I think it is. You know, it could be that people just simply can't recall the near-death experience. So, and then that, again, that raises another question. So how is it that 20% of people recall things, but the other 80% don't? Mm. So, you know, when you start doing research in this field, it, it just raises so many more questions, you know? Yeah. And you do have to be careful as well, because it doesn't take much to be able to call yourself a hypnotist. And you could do damage to somebody. There may be Absolutely. a reason as well why they don't remember Perhaps it was a bad experience. Yes, and... that's it. Absolutely, it, it is. You know, if anyone is thinking of hypno hypnosis, I would really advise against it. But if you, you know, if you really want to, then you know, it, be very cautious and make sure that you do have a very reputable um, therapist who does have lots of experience of doing this. So moving back onto the more positive aspect of these NDEs, because I don't want to leave people worrying about it, <laughs> there are some instances where people return from these experiences with a new skill or knowledge. Yeah. Can you speak yeah. more about this? Well, yeah, the, I think that probably the best example of this that I've got is a lady called Raja Benamore. And I met her when we both spoke at a conference in Marseille in France in 2013. Now, Raja, she just works in retail. And during she went into the hospital. She had some routine surgery. And as soon as the anaesthetic was administered, it took her back into a near-death experience. She had a life review. She went back to the time of her own birth. But not only to her own birth, she went back and described the birth as the whole of the universe. She felt that she had shrunk down into the size of an atom and had travelled all around the inside of her body. And when she came back, she had lots of different changes. So she had multiple changes in her electromagnetic field. She couldn't even touch a metal door handle without having an electric shock from it. Anything like electrical equipment was malfunctioning in her presence. Wow. She couldn't wear wristwatches. And this is quite a common trait after a near-death experience. But she experienced it in the extreme. And when I met her, she had, although we were indoors, she had big, thick sunglasses on because she's got um, light sensitivity as well as a result. And uh, the lights were hurting her eyes. But also, she then developed this knowledge of quantum physics. Now, she'd never studied it in her life. And it motivated her to go and enroll on a course at the university. And the interesting thing in this conference is that the organisers had actually interviewed her university professor. 
he said he was amazed how she could have this knowledge. It's very deep-seated knowledge that you couldn't just acquire through reading books or doing a short booster course. This is something that, and what she was writing about in her papers, he felt, was beyond his own knowledge as well. And some of the things that she'd written about in her papers had then subsequently been verified by publications in physics journals as well after she'd written them. That is, you know, just incredible, you know. That is astounding. So you mentioned that she had an influence on electrical equipment, so watches, I presume, uh, things like computers and, and mobile phones and that sort of stuff as well. So presumably that kind of effect could be measured. Yeah. Has she undergone any kind of scientific testing that can measure a difference between her and, let's say, someone who hasn't experienced this type of uh, near-death? Not that I know of. I don't know. She might have done in the time since I've met her but not that I know of but that again is an interesting thing that I would love to do more research on because you know we could measure the electromagnetic fields of people who have a near-death experience and and learn more about that as well but it doesn't affect everyone who has a near-death experience either so it's quite a difficult one but I know so many people who have said you know they've had really expensive watches and they've stopped working for them. They've taken it to the jewellers. The jeweller can't find anything wrong with it. Other people will wear the watch and it's fine. But it's just on that person who's had the experience. It's, uh, it's really fascinating. And I know it can be very costly for some people I've spoken to because their computers crash every six months. They have to renew their computers. You know, it's something that really is fascinating to me. It is interesting because a lot of people who do talk about their NDs say that they've seen super bright light, you know, they've been into that light or and they can physically, their body just becomes, like you said, atoms and little, maybe they are in some way exposed to something. Somehow charged. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it may well be, and I, I would, you know, I'd love to research that further. There you so. go. That's your next book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, in your opinion, do you think synchronicity and NDEs are linked? Well, they could be. I know when you start to notice synchronicities, you know, is um, yeah, it, it could well be. And I know Kelly in particular does have a lot of synchronicities. And I think maybe they're always there, but sometimes we just don't pay attention to them. And when we start to pay attention to them, we notice more and more of them, you know. And it does make a lot of people have a lot more focus and they do notice more detail about things after an NDE. Yes, they do. In your book, I was really interested in Jeff's story how he envisioned himself holding his son and then being held by God and how he talks about the issue of free will, that he actually does have a choice. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so free will and things. Well, that's interesting because a lot of people kind of, when they have the near-death experience, it's almost like sometimes they're given that choice to return and sometimes they're not. Some people kind of get sent back by the relatives, but some people do get that option. And there's one lady I can recall in particular, and she said you, she was told you've got a choice. You can either stay here or you can go back. And she doesn't remember making that choice. She just remembers waking up in the hospital and not recognising anyone around her. And it varies really from person to person how they perceive that aspect of it as well. But, but Jeff experience is fascinating and you know the depth that he goes into in that chapter it really was and yeah and and he does a lot of public speaking as well around this you know so he has been it's probably one of the things that's helped him to cope with the tragedy of what happened you know so and this is a reason why uh, our listeners should buy the book because <laughs> there are yes. amazing things in that book that just totally blew me away which accounts and experiences gave you the most comfort, Penny? Oh, gosh. Well, all of them, really. I think every one of them is really inspiring. And I'm inspired by the work that continues after their experience, you know. It's those those transformational aspects and the, the work that these people go on to do. And it's all about being of, of service to others and it's helping the greater good, really. 
So, you know, I'm inspired by all of that. And I, I just think it's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, another one like David Bennett in the book as well, you know, he had this experience when he was nearly drowning. Yeah. And years later, you know, he's overcome so many things since. And he had multiple myeloma and he was expected to, to die. And his experience almost gave him that strength to overcome that. And here he is, a big, strong man, years and years later, you know. So he didn't didn't die as his doctors had predicted, you know. And that, again, is, is phenomenal to me. It's something that the, the psychological strength that people get as a result of these experiences. The drive, like you said, mm. it's always giving them the determination to want to do things for the greater good like you said it's it's just amazing what some people have gone on to do and you mentioned yourself earlier penny you feel empowered by your research that it's actually left you with that feeling of being empowered so as well as obviously being empowered how has it changed your maybe your religious beliefs or your hopes and fears how has your research impacted you in that way well when i first started my research i was quite an atheist really I didn't believe in a god at all and I remember when I was a teenager being very angry at god because there was all this awful hunger in the world and these awful wars and things and then as I started reading more around my research I started to have more of an open mind and then certainly doing my research has convinced me really it's this higher power that I, I can't explain. I don't know what it is. You can't quantify it. But it's all—it's like it's present in my life all the time. And it's, it's I don't know, it, it feels very guiding anyway. So there's that aspect. But it's also as well made me live my life differently as well. You know, before I used to be quite, oh, I'd go shopping, you know, spend all my money on music CDs and clothes and things like that, you know. And I was very materialistic. But now... Um, that just doesn't interest me at all. It's simple things that don't cost money that interest me the most now and being out in nature and things like that. And sometimes, you know, we're so busy working long hours and striving for material wealth that we're really missing out on true wealth, which doesn't cost anything, you know. It's it's what we are. It's life. It's the gift of our life as well. So I think, you know, it's made me appreciate my life and appreciate what I have and you know a lot of people who have a near-death experience they live each moment you know live for the moment and they describe it as feelings of love just that they can't explain that that is what they sense when they do have their NDEs and maybe that's That's the problem there aren't a lot of people that just love are there it's just yeah that's it it's about this unconditional love and just being of love really giving that love out to others well i gotta say that i really admire you penny for your the work that you've done and the research that you've done and i think that findings that are obviously delivered through your book are definitely a lesson for us all and what i like about what you're putting across as well is that you're not doing it and i don't mean any disrespect to anyone else when i say this but you're not doing it in a sort of new agey sort of style where everything's sort of woo-woo and all that sort of stuff. You're approaching it as an academic, which obviously you are, as someone whose basis is in science. And I think you're bringing a very important and valid message to us all. So I just want to let you know from our point of view that we really appreciate the work that you've done and the book that you've written and your previous books as well. Are you continuing your research in any way? Yes, I am. At the moment, it's very difficult to get funding for this kind of work, you know, and it's very difficult to get it accepted as well within institutions. What I'm doing currently is I'm I'm developing some online courses because I know I get a lot of emails from all over the world and what I'm going to develop is online courses so people will have access and I can do online seminars and then people can sign up and watch things online then, you know. I'll be there. So, that, <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's my next plan. So it's finding the time to actually do it. So hopefully by the end of the year, I should have at least one course up and running. And then as part of the course, I would do then like live events in different parts of the UK, 
and all over the world, really. Well, definitely keep us abreast of that because that's certainly something that we'll push for you this end as well. Um, we'll let oh, our lovely. listeners know about it. And yeah, definitely consider us a, a friend in terms of helping you push this because, as I said, it's something that we believe in and we believe as a benefit for mankind, I think, as a whole. No, oh, thank you very much. So just lastly, where can people learn a little bit more about you and where can they get hold of your books? Yeah, I've got a website, which is www.drpennysartori.com. My books are available from all bookshops and online as well. Excellent. Okay, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes so that people can click on that and find you easily as well. Lovely, thank you. Doctor, we really, really do appreciate you spending the time with us. Thank you once again. It really has been a joy, not only reading your book, but also getting the opportunity to speak to you. And it's oh, lovely to hear you. it's lovely to hear a Welsh accent across the uh, <laughs> airwaves as well. Yes. <laughs> I don't oh, have a Welsh accent. <laughs> That's right. You'll you'll get one one day. We'll make sure of it. Don't worry about that. Anyway, thank you very much again. It's been lovely speaking to you. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. She's really a nice woman. She is, and she's from Wales as well, which that's why she's a nice woman, you see. If she come from anywhere else in the world, then she'd just probably be just like a normal person. But because she's Welsh, just like me, it just seeps out. Right, okay, so I am going to do some research now and see if I can't find out if there's a serial killer that comes from Wales, just so I can say, oh, but they're a nice person because they come from Wales. But there's always exceptions to the rule. There's a lot of food for thought, actually, what we discussed today, isn't there? There is, yes. And I read the whole entire book, and it really is something to think about. So, and when you're reading it, it, there are certain parts of it where you're just blown away by some of the things that people say. Yeah, I think overall, I think the takeaway from that book was that it's quite a positive experience, isn't it? These near-death experiences. I know there's the odd one, which is which is bad. Worried me a little bit, but she said that it was often people who have control issues because that is definitely me. So I'm going to have a shit. If I have ever a near-death experience, it's going to be a shit when I know it. Mm, probably. <laughs> Anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening. As always, don't forget you can go to our website now, www.weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. We also have a new email address, which is mail at weirdwackywonderful.co.uk. You can listen to all of our shows on our website. You can also get in touch with us should you wish to do so with a story or a guest suggestion. There's also some information there on each of our shows and links to all of the people that we meet along the way as well. Yeah, definitely check it out because... A lot of work went into it. Yeah, tell me about it. A lot of sleepless nights. And there's still work going on to it. It's still going to get better as we go. I, I slept okay. I know. That's because I was doing the website. All right. Okay. Bitch. Oh, nice. <laughs> you won't be doing it for long. <laughs> Take it easy, guys. And don't forget to stay weird, weird wacky, wacky, and, and wonderful. wonderful.